Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer and tarot reader Joy Vernon, who's joining me here in the studio in Denver today. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me over, Chris. Yeah, so we you came out to Denver. You live in Washington, um, but you came out to Denver to visit for the ESAR conference mm-hmm. that happened this past week. And we go way back because you you um, used to live here in Denver until a couple of years ago when you moved away, and you actually ran the biggest uh, tarot meetup in Denver for many years. Yeah, that's right. The Denver Tarot Meetup. Yeah. And I also ran the Denver Tarot Geeks. Okay. Um, yeah, and those groups, or at least one of those groups is still going, They're, right? They both are, yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, because Denver, it seemed like, was one of the more, largely due to your influence, one of the more happening places for tarot for a number of years. Yeah, um, I I like to think so. <laughs> and yeah, we had a very large, very active group with um, a lot, like the Denver Tarot Meetup had maybe nine events a month at one point or or even more. So yeah, it was very active, very active group. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, you uh, have come back to Denver and you're like catching up with old friends and stuff like that. And we were just at the coffee shop talking about a few topics. And I was like, this would be great for the podcast. So I thought we'd discuss, we do, I've been doing this sort of like casual series where I have a casual astro chat with different people over the past month. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to do one of those. Awesome. All right. So first things first, um, one of the things I was catching you up on is I actually started learning tarot um, earlier this year, starting around my birthday, actually, this solar return year. Oh, sweet. I've been in a Pisces perfection year with that Jupiter-Neptune conjunction. And there was something about that. Um, But you know, when I first got into astrology, I started studying astrology and tarot at the same time. But I felt like um, early on that I felt like I I needed, if I was going to specialize or truly master one of them, I needed to pick one. So I went with astrology because that was the one I was just more interested in at the time. So it's been interesting things coming full circle and like learning about tarot in retrospect now at this point where I am at my career almost like 20 years later. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, astrology and tarot. So first things first, um, I'm really struck by with tarot how as a form of divination, Sometimes when I had an important or like pressing question or topic on my mind, I would do a simple like three card spread because that's usually what I'm focused on at this point to keep things simple. Um, I was struck by like how much it would actually reflect or describe the situation that I found myself in. And just that in and of itself um, kept striking me as as not shocking because I understand, you know, the astrology and divination, all those things work intellectually or abstractly, but actually seeing it happen is is another thing. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things about tarot. That's um it strikes people immediately. And also my teacher taught me to start doing readings for other people very early on. And I encourage people that study with me also to do that because not only do they have that immediate resonance with the cards that they get for their own readings, but when they then take it to that level of reading for even just friends or family, let alone um, uh, strangers, it's even more shocking to realize that the cards can be so uh, precisely aligned with what somebody else is going through, perhaps somebody you don't even know. So yeah, I'm not surprised. And I think it's one of the really cool things about the medium. Right. So the purpose of that is to show you that it's not just like 
of reading for somebody else that early in your studies that it's not just you fooling yourself or like convincing yourself through confirmation bias or something like that that the cards are actually like speaking to you but it's that or reflecting what you're thinking or focused on at the moment but when you start doing that with other people you realize it's still working even when you're doing a reading for another individual yeah yeah absolutely absolutely okay. nice um so why does that work why does it work <laughs> yeah why, why do the tarot cards why does a has to do with like ideas of like chance and fortune and fate and all of these things that uh, you shuffle like most forms of divination you shuffle the cards and then um you pull out a few and that that random chance like distribution of cards even though it should be um completely random and meaningless and purposelessness um for some reason through that random chance um it actually should be or should speak meaningfully to you in the moment. Yeah, and how it works, um, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know, and I don't, and I've never found the need to truly try to come up with a theory. I'm more interested in the fact that it does work. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and the other problem with that being is I can easily come up with a psychological theory that, you know, oh, I see in it what's relevant to me. You know, I could come up with a magical theory. I've infused these cards with, with you know, a energy um, a vibration or, or something that is um, lifting up the right cards, like magnetically attracting the right cards mm -hmm. uh, to me or some such thing. I could come up with more of a spiritual... Thing that that my guides are speaking through the cards to me. You know, I can I can come up with a lot of different theories, but it's is more. There, is there like a time travel one where you actually time travel? You went back in time and like stepped on a dinosaur. It's like the butterfly effect where you uh, changed a sequ sequence of events in your past in order to make the cards fall exactly in that way. Is that has anyone it. ever proposed that? No, you're the first. You're the first, but it's going down in history because that's now my new favorite theory. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna call that like the Terminator like theory, the time time travel theory. Uh, I want I want copy. My, the, like my future self went back and rearranged the cards so that I'd get the right ones. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, right. <laughs> I love I, it. I like you. You like became a tarot card deck uh, creator in the 1800s, and then like yes, there you go. Yes, yeah. All right, I love uh, it. <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking copyright on that theory, and I I swear to God, if I see anybody on TikTok. You know, repeating that theory without contribute attribution, yeah, I'll be I'll be yeah. very displeased. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's brilliant. All right, well, I like how you you know you there's many different one of the things you're talking about is just there's many different theories. Just like with astrology, there's many different theories about how it could work, and different people tend to gravitate to the one that makes the most sense to them intellectually or abstractly or philosophically or religiously. But ultimately, we are. People that use this technology, and we know that it's it works, even if we don't like have all of the answers to like the secrets of the universe and know exactly how it works. Just in the same way that you know, I, I know how to drive a car, even if I don't fully know the mechanics of exactly how the car works, or I know how to use a microwave, even if I don't exactly know how the microwave works, or how to like construct one, if I had to build one from scratch. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like tarot likely is easier than a microwave but it would be worth mm, <laughs> exploring okay. we'll see if there's any microwave uh inventors in the audience maybe they can let us know in the youtube comments uh if that's yes. yeah yeah <laughs> um all right so 
arrow so it works um it does this weird thing where it sometimes will it's like the universe is like speaking to you is the op observation that i had earlier this year and that wasn't like hugely surprising to me because i'm already familiar not just with natal astrology but also with horary astrology where if somebody has a single important pressing question on their mind and they pose it to an astrologer and the astrologer casts a chart for when they receive the question the chart often will actually reflect not just the nature of the question but also the likely outcome or the answer to the question the outcome to the situation which is similar to sort of how tarot works from a practical standpoint yeah uh, yeah absolutely yeah very similar mm -hmm. um and just like the when you do that and um and you're you're looking at what comes up and and it's just immediately relevant you right. can just immediately see your question in that in that chart mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's the same type of thing if you know the if you understand the symbolism if you know the basics of like the the planets and what the different parts of the chart mean or if yeah. you know the cards ahead of time whereas if you don't know anything about it you know it just it doesn't mean anything to you because it's just like a another language or like a foreign language well in one of my one of the ways I teach tarot, and I have on my website uh, the Quick Start Tarot uh, Guide uh, and uh, kit. Uh, kind of, there's a couple different ways of that I've packaged it. Um, but uh, when I'm teaching tarot, I focus a lot on the images, and to me, that's one of the. I mean, kind of one of the obvious differences between tarot and astrology, but at the same time. Um, uh, I I want to really emphasize it um, in that with astrology you're working abstractly with uh, very sparse symbols. Now there's a ton of information behind those symbols, but a lot of that does need to be learned. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit less. It, I mean, I've I approached astrology very intuitively, having been self-taught and not done it the right way at all. <laughs> but um, but I already had quite a background in symbolism. And then tarot is a little bit more accessible in that it it speaks with images. Mm -hmm. And there's different types of decks. You can get decks that are going to speak more with symbols, um, esoteric decks, golden dawn decks, um, yeah, and so on and so forth. But I I promote uh any kind of an illustrated deck with scenes on all the cards for my beginning students so that they can dive right into the images themselves like they would look at a storybook or a storyboard for a movie or something like that. Mm. And, uh, and it comes alive very quickly, even if you haven't studied anything, even if you don't have any sense of a meaning for the card. I say the cards have no meaning except in relationship to a question, a, a querent or person asking the question, and a context of the other cards laying in the spread. Okay. So yeah, that's a good point there. That's an interesting point. So you, you recommend starting certainly with a more illustrated deck so that the symbolism is more clear and you have more to go off of versus some decks it's they're much more sparsely illustrated or the, or the symbolism is like harder to get get to yeah exactly mm -hmm. exactly and you know astrologers would actually do fine with the more if they if they want to 
just read tarot right away, they would be fine working with those esoteric decks because the esoteric decks usually have the um, symbols printed on the card. Mm -hmm. And so you would immediately be able to see, you know, that the two of cups is Venus and Cancer and boom, you would have a, a feeling for that. Whereas a non-astrologer starting with tarot um, might not know wouldn't that may or may not mean anything to them and so having a picture of two people you know together um looking lovingly at each other that kind of thing would would bring out that that uh energy and that symbolism of the card mm, okay so you're supposed to and and so what's important and what's a crossover between astrology and tarot that's so important is that you're looking at things symbolically and you're interpreting the symbolism that's inherent in whatever the symbol is and that you're supposed to like reflect on that and think deeply on that but the symbolism in and of itself contains some information that's relevant to the person that's thinking or asking the question at that time yeah yeah um and i mean you kind of said a mouthful there <laughs> yeah. so i could kind of go off on a few different tangents but yeah um go go off please <laughs> um symbolism so yeah we're this, dealing with symbolism. This, there's different ways of looking at symbolism and i've written quite a maybe not quite a lot but i've written certainly several posts on it on my blog mm -hmm. um and um there there's different forms of symbolism and there there is the type of symbols that we're used to working with as astrologers just like you know planetary and glyphs and zodiacal glyphs um there's a uh, cabalistic symbolism there is um but there's also um i'll give an example um i was a student had asked me in a class one time about the fool the fool card and he has a a stick over his shoulder sometimes this shoulder, sometimes this shoulder in an odd uh, configuration. Um, and the stick has a bag on it. And um, they said, well, what's in the bag? And, and, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> none of the decks have it open. How, how would I know? And they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, the, the, the fool carries his memories in the bag. And I'm like, okay, well, you probably read that from somebody really smart that wrote a book. And that's awesome. Um, and I, and and I think I didn't follow through with that anymore. And I said, "Yeah, that sounds totally right to me. I can see that the fool has memories. That that works." But the a day or two later, and this was when I was living in Denver, I had walked uh, down to get some cat food. Okay, and then it's about a mile, and I was going to take the bus back, but something was going on, and the bus schedule was super messed up. And so I kept walking to the next bus stop thinking that I'd catch the bus. And after, and I ended up missing like two buses doing that. And finally, I uh, just decided to walk home. And I started thinking about this question the student had, and I'm carrying a bag um, with cat food in it. And I'm like, you know, the the fool has cat food in his bag because I the fool often has mountains in the background. And I looked, I had just passed a, an intersection where I looked down the road towards the mountains. 
And I was just like, I'm the fool. I'm walking home. I couldn't, I missed my bus because of my foolish choices about what to, you know, how to catch this bus that on the this weird schedule. And now I've got cat food in my bag and I'm the fool walking at home. And he's got his little companion with him, you know, nipping at his heels. And it's like that companion's very happy that he's about to get fed. Mm. Um, and so to me, the symbolism is much more um there's much more of an immediacy to it. Um, and there can be this abstract, oh, he carries memories in his bag, but I prefer more of a really tangible, practical, you know, like what's currently in your bag? What currently are you carrying? What you're, what's your current, uh, you know, most important need that you're, that you're carrying with you on this particular journey? Um, and it can be an everyday thing like cat food, or it can be something really big and powerful, um, depending on the type of question you ask and all kinds of other things. So I really, I really love all forms of symbolism, but I think that type of super practical, immediate type of symbolism ultimately works the best. Mm, okay. So it's, it's contextually specific to the question the symbolism is and also there's like a an elasticity to to it as well yeah 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 hmm. okay that yeah. that makes sense um so yeah and it seems like there's a lot of different overlapping symbolism that you can take and i've seen different books that just like go through the tarot cards and then there's many different attempts to like overlay different um types of symbol systems onto them like this is the like number of the card this is the decan associated with it this is the hebrew letter associated with the card or what have you and some of that honestly would seem kind of overwhelming and is seeming um like going pretty far and so one of the things i tried to focus on early on was just like the the images themselves and the symbolism of the images and focusing on learning that initially before going too far and like integrating other overlapping symbolism in order to try to like squeeze more out of the card Absolutely. And that's totally the way I teach it. And um, my, my approach to tarot and to teaching tarot is to start people off not like almost, I don't think this is totally true anymore, but, but you'll still see an abundance of tarot teachers that say, the very first thing we'll do is memorize the meanings of the cards or some such thing um, as that. Or I'm going to teach you the major arcana in class one. And then, <laughs> and it's like, um, there's no possible way to learn the major arcana in one class unless you teach, <laughs> unless you, you're teaching some more, yeah. Um, I won't go into that, but if you're, yeah, if I just sit down and tell you 22 meanings for the cards, you're not going to know a thing about the major arcana. Let me just summarize it that way. It's too um, too much information, too overwhelming. It's, it's, well, and it's too limited. It's both. Okay. And so. Um, In what way is it limited? Uh, if I just tell you, oh, here's 22 meanings for 22 cards. Mm -hmm you're not really going to understand the full complexity of those cards. Mm -hmm. um, some ways that, that the major arcana can be taught simply are to look at the what we call the tableau, which are certain arrangements of the cards. Um, and I've got a 
blog post on this as well that, and a YouTube is that, video. <laughs> is that is that like the like the card um, the layout that you pick? N no, that would be a spread. Okay, I think is probably what you're referring to. A tableau is a certain arrangement of all 22 of the major arcana, and then by laying them out, like the most popular one is a trestle board pattern that has the fool at the top and then three rows of seven cards. Mm. Um, there are some other variations even on that. Um, there's a, a several different ways of laying out figure eight uh, patterns. I have what I teach, which is a three, seven, 12 pattern. Um, and uh, well, it, it's actually 12, seven, three, but, um, but yeah. And starting to see relationships more than just a series of meanings helps immensely. Um, and um, so kind of like with the Zodiac, I've been doing this series on the signs of the Zodiac um, over the past six months. And it's been interesting how um, when you have one sign, there's almost like this corrective quality that the sign that follows after it has, like, mm -hmm. you know, Aries is very fast, but then Taurus is very slow or um, Leo is very like showy, but then in Virgo, it gets very humble all of a sudden. So, and some of that has to do with just like, what is the natural sequence of the Zodiac? But here you're saying that there's something like that here where there's different sequences that you could arrange things. And depending on the sequence, that's going to tell you different things about how the cards relate to and play off of each other. Precisely. And what, if you can become familiar with maybe two or three different, like start with one, but but eventually work towards two or three different tableau and just, and just experimenting. I don't want to say study and I don't want to say meditate, but just experimenting with what does, would this mean if these two cards now become related, you know, and you'll, you'll uncover a huge amounts of information that way. Um, and it just takes, it just takes a sense of curiosity to do that. Okay. All right. That's cool. Um, so there's so much there. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me that I started getting into before I had to take a little bit of a break was when there were certain cards. I was using like inverted cards. I don't know if you use inversions. Yes, no? I, I, I do, but I don't quite do it the way some people do. And I don't emphasize it for, for uh, students that are just beginning. For beginners too. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, one of the things that was interesting in some of the interpretations or when I got some interpretations or some advice from different tarot readers on like Instagram of certain layouts was like certain figures certain in certain cards when they're like looking back in a certain direction at certain other cards or other figures and different things like that started getting really interesting with um, the depth and complexity of the symbolism depending on what the specific you know card pool that you have yeah absolutely that's a really good way of working with those um identifying the direction i the one of the main client decks i use actually slightly sadly has almost everybody facing straight out <laughs> and so so it's a little bit lean on that particular um uh technique but yeah uh looking at that looking at the um who's facing each other who's not who has their backs to each other if somebody seems to be entering into the situation yeah all of that kind of stuff is is really nice okay nice i like that layer of symbolism um and 
I started with this deck that I really liked on my birthday, which is, I think it's called the Fountain Tarot. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's an amazing deck. Yeah, just the illustrations are just so beautiful. It was really drawn to that. And I think that's why I started because I saw it um, at the local apothecary, at Apothecary Tinkshura, and picked it up there and then started using it on my birthday last year. But then I realized, even though it was also very beautiful, that I wanted to go back and learn the symbolism, the, the original symbolism of some of the cards. So I started gravitating towards the Radiant Rider Weight tarot deck in mm -hmm. order to understand since it seemed like so many of the later tarot decks have been derived from that at this point as the foundational one well not entirely foundational but foundational for our era maybe in some sense about a century ago right 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 yeah and um in the fountain tarot you probably know was made by denver people i did not i don't know if i knew that yeah they well they were um i'm not 100 percent sure if they're currently in denver but it was a a group of three people, Jonathan Size and Jason Gruel and Andy Todaro. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, um, uh, Jonathan was an artist and he um, painted it, I believe, in Mexico, but they were living in Denver. I mean, they were not living in Denver if they were living in Mexico, but you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> and actually, so that, yeah, and I do remember that because you hosted a tarot conference. In what was it like 2015? 2015, yeah. You know what's funny about that is you organized that tarot conference and you brought Austin into town in order to speak at it. Yeah. And so he was one of my best friends. So he came over and stayed with us. Him and his partner, Caitlin, came and stayed with me and Lisa for um, that conference. And the previous month, I had just gotten back from a, a Northwest astrology conference that was in May. And I hung out a bunch with Kelly, Kelly Surtees. Mm -hmm. And then her and I came up with the idea of starting to do some forecast episodes together, like a monthly forecast on the podcast. And we did one of them after Norwalk. And then the very next month, um, when it was about time to do the next, Austin was in town for that conference and he was staying with us. And Kelly and I were about to record. And I just happened to, like, on still on a lark, I was like, hey, do you want to, Austin, do you want to join me and Kelly for this forecast? And so he was like, yeah, sure. And so we, he joined us and we did our very first forecast then. What month that was? That was like June or July. Was, yeah, of, the end of June. June of, of, of 2015. Yeah. Yeah, it was during a Venus retrograde. It is a well. There was the Venus Jupiter conjunction right. too that yeah. month. Yeah, it was a Venus Venus retrograde and Venus Jupiter conjunction because I always remember and associate that Venus retrograde and that Venus Jupiter conjunction because right around that time the Supreme Court um, legalized same sex marriage. Oh right, yeah. It was like yeah. right at the same time, but also the other thing that happened was me and Austin Kelly did the first forecast episode together oh, as a wow. team but it was due to you having austin in town so basically you can take credit for for <laughs> the entirety of all subsequent forecast episodes and all the success of the podcast since then oh my god yeah um i i really am enjoying being back in denver because so many people that i have met up with have like given me some kind of credit for some amazing development in their life and i'm just like i don't do anything i swear and right. so i'm like and it's just been funny so far and now like one of my heroes is telling me that i've influenced him and so i'm just i'm uh, this is cracking me up and um i'm super embarrassed at the same time <laughs> yeah it's like the astrology or like tarot version of like forrest gump and he goes around just like changing world events like accidentally during the course of the 20th century but he doesn't really know that he's done that and that is perfect i'm 
Totally Forrest Gump. I will take that. Okay. okay. <laughs> I will take that and accept that. I totally love it. <laughs> yeah. With your, your knapsack full of cat food and yes. yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, so yeah, so that was a big deal. How do we, oh yeah. I wanted to clarify. So I, I remember the Fountain Tarot actually had a display and I, I got like a poster actually of theirs at that conference. Yeah. But um, I think I actually need to clarify something because even though I was, I like that deck, um, the one I actually got from the apothecary and started with on my birthday was the Field Tarot. Um, have you seen that one? Uh, I think I have. I don't have it though. It's okay if you haven't, but I just want to clarify that. So the Field Tarot is the one I started working with, but then I realized I needed to like learn the rider weight deck, so I've been working with like the radiant wider rider weight since that time. Well, and that, um, and I'm glad you said that because it helps me circle back to some of the other. When I said, "Oh, this could take me in a lot of different directions," one of the other directions is I actually um, a few years ago, maybe I don't know as many as ten years ago, but but probably seven or eight years ago, I actually started um, forbidding the Rider-Waite-Smith deck in my classes. Okay. And it was because of several reasons. The primary, one of the primary ones that led to that was just the fact that it was starting to be everybody was showing up with that deck. Hmm. And, um, oh, those are beautiful images. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the... And that's a little more pippish. Um, and oh yeah, with that three of discs, that's definitely got a Toth influence as well. Mm. Oh, I, um, like, I like that. You're like an art history <laughs> historian where you can see like the influences of the different, uh, the symbolism in the, in the artistry and images. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really, it's really relevant for understanding how a deck works is what its lineage is. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Um, but with this, with this Rider Waite Smith thing, more and more people are showing up to class, and and I like having a variety of decks. And if Rider Waite Smith is one out of a variety, it doesn't bother me. But the other thing that happened was when students were showing up with a Rider Waite Smith deck, they were asking, they were feeling much more um, tied to some innate meaning in the card. And and much more a sense of, well, Rachel Pollack says, well, Mary Greer says, well, you know, in the accompanying booklet, Arthur Waite says, um, and much less able to experiment and play with the deck and um, just let the deck be what it wants to be. Um, and so I started... Uh, I started saying saying you can't use this deck. Um and I and I have nothing whatsoever against the deck. I love it. I do think that every tarot reader needs to have all of those images firmly um emblazoned in their um in their memory. Um but um but yeah, I just don't I don't want people to to begin. I don't want my students to begin with it due to this this over dependence on there is a right answer for this deck because this deck is the ultimate end all be all of tarot um and um i i bumped into somebody at a cherry creek arts festival right before i i left denver and um 
And we got to talking, really liked his art quite a bit. We got to talking and he obviously had some tarot background. And he said, um, oh, I'm thinking about doing a deck. Um, I would use the right symbolism, the correct symbolism. And I, I kept my mouth shut. But I'm, I was just kind of laughing. I was like, what's the right symbolism? Is it a TDM symbolism? Is it a Visconti symbolism? Is it a Rider-Waite-Smith? Is it the Toth? I suspected from his artwork that he meant the Toth symbolism. Um, is it straight Golden Dawn symbolism? I don't know what the right symbolism is. So, um, so yeah, there there isn't there isn't really that kind of right symbolism to me. There's just different lineages. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of like with astrology where astrologers in modern times commonly use the analogy of astrology as a language and there's there's many different approaches to astrology that are kind of like speaking different languages and then Rob Hand famously said something like you know in the question of which astrology is the correct one he says that's like asking which language is correct french or german or english and and that it's kind of like a nonsensical question when you understand that they're just different approaches to conveying information or or to uh listening to how the universe speaks yeah yeah exactly and different people will resonate with different styles with my beginning one of my approaches is uh starting people on illustrated decks that aren't the rider weight smith and getting them to really um, engage with the images, tell um, tell the stories, but I have like really um, structured approaches to how to do that. Um, and working with those images to um, to tease out a sequence of events or a sequence of uh, actions, a plot of a story. Um, and what happens is as people become more familiar with doing that, and not getting bogged down in uh, meanings of the cards, it opens up their creativity and that really tends to access the intuition. And that's another thing about tarot versus astrology is that tarot is very imagistic and imagery activate or is, is read in the back of the head, in the occipital lobe. And... Um, and that's the same part of the brain that deals with visions and with dreams. And by focusing on imagery, we activate that part that is um, older, that is um, uh, that's more intuitive and less logical. And that's what you really want in your tarot reading practice and ultimately in your divination practice of any form, including astrology, is to be able to connect with that part that is going to um, uh, allow these this kind of a deeper um, uh, language, since we've been using that word, that's a good one, a deeper, like more um, eternal uh, type of language to come up and come out as you speak the images. And so um, when I can have people start working that way, when we get out of tarot and start to learn astrology and then learn some Kabbalah, and then when we uh, conclude, I do a, I used to, I don't anymore, someday I'll do it again, a year-long program that starts with beginning tarot and ends with esoteric tarot. Um, by the time then you get to esoteric tarot where you are reading um, just simple glyphs and symbols as you would in astrology, 
Um, you've developed this ability to speak those images and to speak the symbolism as a story. And if you just start with memorizing meanings and go on to, me and I do make people memorize all the uh, different um, um, glyphs and and uh, correspondences for for all the for the full deck. Uh, <laughs> there's there are tests every week in my esoteric tarot class. Some some tests with dozens, even a hundred questions on them, um, but really quite easy and fast and uh, fast to do once you've memorized everything. Um, but by the time they get to that, they're not just seeing it as these abstract uh, kind of blank symbols that that are silent. They're they're coming at it from these are these are kind of markers to the story uh, that just opens up. And so, um, yeah, living images. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a process, and it, but it has to start at the beginning with not worrying about um, the logical approach, you know, the frontal lobe approach to learning tarot, but activating that intuitive uh, visual from the beginning. Um, and I think, and I, when I started do, doing astrology after having been like at that time, maybe having 20 years of tarot experience, I immediately was seeing, the, seeing um, I was, well, and I've got, I have an astrology talk on this topic. <laughs> I, I was imme immediately seeing um, stories and mythology in the in the actual, not just not just like oh, I happen to know that Venus is Aphrodite. I was I was seeing in the actual arrangement um, of in the way the aspects laid out and stuff like that. I was I was seeing stories um, almost immediately, which is why I went off on a weird tangent, uh, being self-taught and eventually did have to go back and learn a few things. Yeah. Um, you know, something that's funny, I just mentioned that cause I was trying to find the right word for your thought of the way you were describing the cards. And I said, living images, I just realized that's exactly what, um, the original word for this, the Greek word for the signs of the Zodiac meant, which was Zoideon. And, um, one of my teachers, Robert Schmidt struggled with how to translate that word for many years and he left it untranslated in many of his translations of Hellenistic texts like Valens and Ptolemy because he couldn't come up with a word that conveyed um, both of the meaning meanings because on the one hand it meant like a living animal or a living being something that was alive but on the other hand it meant like an image or a representation of something and I, I just realized that that's actually exactly what that word Zoideon meant originally it meant a living image just like um, you're describing like a tarot image is like a, a living image that even though it's we put it representationally as it's this 2D image on a flat piece of paper cardstock, it's meant to actually be like alive and to convey something that has like depth and meaning and movement. Um, and it's it's not uh, just fixed or static necessarily. Absolutely. And you'll see that word all over astrological magic text too. Create an image. Create an image is always how it's phrased. And sometimes they mean as far as like well, yes, and that's and that is definitely what it means. But um, I can't help but notice that when they say create the image, they're also describing the chart. Mm. And um, create a chart. 
Yeah, because like the chart a, is like the image. Al- like an election? Yeah. Right. Well, in the, I mean, astrological magic being mostly about that, mm. but um, that part's not, I, I don't think, too surprising. But the very fact that, um, at least the way I read it, which I have no any experience whatsoever or knowledge um but but yeah i just i'm always coming across create the an image that contains these these things which is how to elect the chart for the operation um but um but one other component and even when you're looking at the picatrix and the decanic images you know my first thought when i was um when i first you know came across the decanic images which um i came across on ben dyke's website which he doesn't have up there anymore i don't think or at least it was gone for a while when he went to a new website um and, you know i'm like well i, I want to see the images where are the images like who drew the images of, and in the, of the 36 seconds yeah and um and of course obviously there's the palace Shifanoia images and there's some other ones but it finally occurred to me after um, a lot of kind of work with it and contemplation, it's like, oh, you, you're not supposed to see images, you're supposed to visualize the images. And that's why they're written in words. Um, you know, certainly people have the ability to draw things going way, way, way back. And so these are all written in words. And so it's the process of imagining it. Okay. Again, which is activating this. You're taking the words, which, which is from the frontal lobe, and you're moving it back into the back of the head, where you're connecting with that what you know what you're describing as the living image. Mm. And you're supposed to be visualizing and imagining, and that is re- what really activates the subconscious and brings up. Um, well, and I won't. I <laughs> you're you're reaching for a book, and I don't want to go too far off. No, keep going. I'm reaching for Austin's book because it'll <laughs> oh, yeah, illustrate yeah. your point. But keep going. Okay, okay. Um, uh, you have a, like a really fancy copy of it. I mean, Austin. I just bought the paperback when it came out. <laughs> well, and even the paperback is like really hard to find at this point. That's what I hear. They did a limited print run, you, you know, with his original publisher years ago, and that's part of the deal. But when they ran out, they ran out. So that book is selling for like a lot on eBay, like people are like scalping Austin's book or like, you oh my know, God. <laughs> selling like their firstborn like children or something for <laughs> to get a copy of Austin's 36 faces. But he did do some like early like talismanic versions, like super special. He did a super wow. special limited edition. Um, That's gorgeous. And he set aside one of them for me and it's like, oh I call it the, the golden book, but it's like a super special slipcase version with a golden cover. Oh my um, goodness. And he did 36 of these and he saved oh, wow. one for each of the decans. And he saved, um, I believe it's, yeah, Scorpio one, the first decan of Scorpio for me, because that's my son's of sign. Of course, yes. So, nice. Yeah. So it's one of those super, super rare or super like cool, uh, you know, things of, of uh, you know, being a friend with a famous astrologer. So make your astrology friends early because then once they come out with really cre- <laughs> cool books, <laughs> cool books, then you, you might get one. Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. very good. Yeah, uh, the first decan of Scorpio is um, the Five of Cups, which the Five of Cups reversed, which I actually did pull this week. Mm. Um, My teacher taught me, he taught me some fortune-telling meanings, and the Five of Cups reversed is a return of an old friend. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that. That's perfect. Um, I'm just pulling out one of... uh, 
like Austin's descriptions of one of the Deccans, like that first Deccan. Um, I don't know, uh, and how he describes it. He says, the very first paragraph, he says, in the first face of Scorpio, hunger awakens, needs stir, and then open a hundred eyes. For this Deccan, Ibn Ezra pictures a beautiful red-bodied woman eating, her very flesh the color of passion. She satiates her hunger. Ibn Ezra's image is perhaps the most direct of the images given to this Deccan, for it shows a satisfaction of hunger in most the most literal of terms. Um, Agrippa in his three books of occult philosophy, skipping forward a paragraph, offers an image of two men striking a dignified woman through the violence of this scene is under undeniable. The men's motivations are unclear. Um, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, he's trying to describe because he takes like, I think, what, four or five different. Right, right. Interpretations, yeah. Different or sources or different sources. images that are handed down through the tradition, both in the Western medieval and sometimes Hellenistic tradition and also he draws on, I think, at least one from the Indian tradition of different ways that they describe these, what at some point were probably visual images, which are actually written out, but they described them in these metaphorical, these striking metaphorical terms. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's Mars in Scorpio, the Mars really the first decan of Scorpio. Um, and so the red uh, flesh, the men striking, I mean, that, that all makes... Uh, it all aligns pretty well with that uh, with that placement. Mm, yeah. So I was just trying to find an example because to describe what you're talking about in terms of the way the Deccans are described as images in the same way that if you had a tarot card in front of you and then you had to write out a description of that, you would try to describe the image that you're seeing. Right. Yeah. 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 So there's a parallel there between astrology and tarot in terms of the use of images an image being an important thing, but one of your points was just, it's not just the visual image itself, it's the description of, of the symbolism that it contains. And that's one of the things Austin was trying to get to the heart of in his book and like unpacking the symbolism underlying the actual images. Yeah, I think I would say actually kind of the opposite, um, that I think the, um, I think the words of the image are designed to be imagined, to be visualized. And so it's taking words and translating words into images, mm. as opposed to finding the words. And obviously, as a tarot reader, that's like what I have to do all day <laughs> is, is put words around images so that it certainly goes both ways. But, but to get into the magic of it and the transformational qualities of it, it's it's really taking um uh in enlivening uh ensouling those images um and seeing them as as visualizing them uh seeing them as living seeing them as interacting um and 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 all of that it, it, the, i don't know it gets complicated i'm not sure where to go with it yeah, yeah. um <laughs> So living images, um, creating an image, that was an interesting thing you, you brought up from the magical tradition that they'll say create an image or they'll say like draw something. And sometimes it's almost like a visualization something if it's something that you're, you want to see, like if two people are supposed to get together or something like that, let's say hypothetically, you're supposed to like draw two, two figures like in an embrace or something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 So there's this whole historical tradition that crosses over between astrology and tarot 
that has to do with the the importance of images, but but there there being other things surrounding that, tying it into the notions of like language and symbolism and other things like that. Yeah. Um, I was surprised. So the tarot, I was trying to do a little historical research because that was another thing I was interested in. So the Rider Waite deck, you know, was constructed in the early 1900s, and there's an interesting story there that's only been re- recovered in recent years in terms of the the woman that illustrated the cards, right? Mm-hmm. What's the whole? What's a um, short version of that story? Uh, well, there's <laughs> there's many. I guess I'm. I guess I would want you to be more. Uh, specific about I know certainly many stories about that mm. so I guess I'm curious which one you're referencing so just that um it's called like the Rider weight deck usually um but but and and so Arthur Edward Waite who was like an occultist in like the early 20th century is often given the main credit for it and he was the one that okay yeah yeah so um yeah um Arthur Edward Waite and Pamela Coleman Smith were both members of the Golden Dawn. Both of them were. So and this, so this he, like occult society in the early 1900s. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so he he certainly was a bit of a know-it-all. She was just a very um, uh, much more artistic, kind of intuitive, very personable uh, type. So they were basically opposites. <laughs> and um, the. I think what I think what you might be referencing because I I do believe that I mentioned this uh, recently um, is the idea that um, uh, Arthur Waite was given um, has been given credit for developing that deck, but uh, a lot of people have started had started wondering like. Is that true? To what degree did he really influence this? And to what degree did you, what did she bring to the equation? And Robert Place wrote an excellent book. His book on um, oh, I'm really bad with book titles. Mm. I want to say it might be called Tarot History, okay. um, but it's by Robert Place. He's got a number of amazing books, and this one I really loved. Um, a lot of what he was talking about. But he made a very simple observation that I think was very profound, that when Arthur Waite described the images of the minor arcana cards, he frequently got it wrong. He frequently described something that wasn't actually in the image. And that led to the conclusion that probably Pamela Coleman Smith had just done these on her own. Um, or, you know, with a little bit of guidance, clearly you can see in the cards a clear sense of the astrological correspondences. He probably just gave her a list of astrological correspondences and let her loose with it. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't find, I love Kabbalah. I don't find often the minor arcana to match as well with the Kabbalah as they do with the astrology. The Toth deck matches the Kabbalah a lot better. Um, and sometimes you you totally see the Kabbalah, uh, the Kabbalistic correspondences in those um, Rider Waite Smith Pip cards, but a lot of times um, I think the astrology is really where she's pulling uh, the most of her meaning from. Um, so so oh, really? yeah, you think she was mainly influenced by the astrology and some of the symbolism that she chose? Yeah, that's, that's really how interesting. that's how I experience it. Yeah, the good. Uh, Wikipedia page that goes into her and draws on some sources, but it was just one of the interesting like stories I was seeing come up as I was trying to research some of the history is just that there's been a movement to give her more 
credit or give oh, her yeah. rightful credit for that over the past decade or two, as in, including I think there was like a commemorative deck that was released um, for her or something the, like yeah, that. Yeah, on the 100 year anniversary, it was published in 1909. So um, yeah, probably guess 2009 is when probably about when that came out. Right. It was just, just a couple of years ago, right? Well, a little, little bit more now. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> 2009, <laughs> only two years ago. Um, I could be wrong because the other thing that's happened recently is I think that deck finally came out. There's arguments about this, so I'm not, I don't want to say anything definitively, but there's been a lot of ongoing arguments about whether or not it's under copyright anymore. And I think that um, the people that are saying it's not under copyright are currently winning that argument. <laughs> and so the, it's a lot easier. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more decks that are using that imagery before um, U.S. games really kind of had it uh, locked up. Um, yeah, it seems like what I what I saw when I tried looking into this was that the original deck is no longer in copyright because it was created in like 1909. But that there's been that some of the later variations of it when they did revised editions in later decades in like the 70s or 80s or whatever, where they updated or like tweaked the coloring or something that they argue that those are still under copyright. And so people can like draw on or repurpose the original deck if you have access to the original images or what have you. But some of the later ones that are more common are still under copyright or something like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty complicated. Yeah, pretty But murky. yeah, there's stuff I mean when I I mean I I learned that deck as the Rider Waite deck and it wasn't honestly until I joined the Denver Tarot meetup that I even heard people calling it the Rider Waite Smith deck. And of course, I mean I I jumped on that bandwagon right away um because I do think that the artist is very important because I focus on images. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, that's a cool little bit of history that at some point I like to dial into or dive into more just because she seems like an interesting character and it's interesting having that history, um, fleshed out more sort of rediscovered in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. Um, consultations in person, you and I were talking a little bit earlier at the coffee shop, how, and we actually did a pre, we, you and I, just before you moved from Denver, you and I and Lisa recorded a discussion here in this studio about um, doing consultations in person that I released um, on the Casual Astrology podcast for patrons. And that was a really great discussion that I remember having. And that's something you've been sort of encountering again, which I think is so unique, whereas you built your practice up locally as a local tarot reader and astrologer, seeing people in person face to face. And then over the past few years, you've had to do more online stuff due to the pandemic and everything else, like everyone else is doing, using Zoom and things like that. But you said you noticed um, that some people really prefer or seem to prefer, for whatever reason, like in-person tarot readings rather than doing it online. Yeah. And it's it's been a little frustrating because most of the astrologers I know have a practice that's exclusively online and has been for years. Um, and I had a in-person practice and we have like a few online ones, but not very like I, I, I mean, <laughs> I remember trying to learn Zoom and Lisa just going, Joy, it's not that hard. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um uh yeah. Um and um and I have so I've been gone from Denver for more than two and a half years. 
and came back and did and had some in-person slots available. I was at Isis Books for a couple days. Um, and um and I had there were two clients specifically that had not seen me, had a reading with me since before I left. And both of them were just like, Oh, I can't find anybody to get a reading from. You're the only one. <laughs> like why haven't you booked online? <laughs> and and they just, they're just like, no, I, I can't. It, the energy's not the same. It's not going to be as good. I'm like, well, just try it. Just book, just book a short reading and just give it a try and see what happens. Um, uh, even though they're telling me that nobody else can read for them. Um, so yeah, there's something I do think that it is. And also, when I was strictly online, and then I opened up some in-person things, I rented a co-working space, which was not ideal, but I've been having trouble finding office space. Um, as soon as I opened up in-person readings, my my reading shot up, and then I had to close it because the building, the co-working space was then closed down, and then boom, my readings fell off again. And um, and I I can't explain it. I People think there's there's a certain energy. Um, certainly, I I think my in my I think my online readings are just as good as my in person. Um, I feel the same energetic connection. What I finally occurred to me, and I've been talking to a number of my friends about this, and I think what happens is that the other person, my client, does not feel the energetic connection. I'm trained to feel that, and so you know I feel it very easily it never really occurred to me that just because i'm feeling it they're not whereas if they were in person they'd be much more um in tune with what's going on so i finally i think that's probably a lot of it um there has been there can be some other things such as a person getting a reading from home or man people that call in from their cars i don't know why they do that um you know, it, there's a lot more distractions for them. Mm -hmm. They're much less likely to be able to have a focused experience. And um, and it's and if they booked an in-person, they would be forced to get the babysitter or to um, arrange their day such that they could arrive at the location prior to the start of the reading and so on and so forth. And when they're doing an online thing, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I can still watch my kid and get a reading. I can still, you know, drive to pick up my kid at school and get a reading. Um, I've had people trying to get readings while they're on break from work <laughs> and being like, oh, my God, I've got to get back. And it's like, OK, right. Um, they're distracted. There's something really interesting about that. There's the idea that maybe that there might be more of a culture surrounding tarot where people expect to do readings in person more or or that they have more of that just because maybe it's more common that you you know at any metaphysical shop around the country or the world that you can like walk in and there'll likely be like a tarot reader that you can get a reading from in person and have that um, immediate, but also like a personal exchange between them. It's interesting me, to me the idea that maybe people are more used to that or more expecting of that versus doing it online, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's that is definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, also, the very visual, the very fact that it's a visual medium. Okay. They're also used to seeing the images, and of course, I'm 
I have experimented with a card cam and having that on the cards, it's it's kind of a lot to be honest. I'm you have like this amazing studio here and I have like a multi-purpose room that has to serve as my office and as my sewing studio and my jewelry making studio and and my home office and a bunch well the couch is mostly my home office these days. Um uh, but yeah, it's 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 multi-purpose, and so having a permanent setup is not really practical for me. And um, setting up a special card cam every single time I do a reading is, I find to be intrusive to just being ready and like present to do the reading. I simply hold up each card as I'm talking about it. I just hold it up to the camera so people can see the image. Okay. Um, if I'm doing, when I'm doing the opening of the key, which is a very big spread with a lot of cards, then I set up the card cam because it's really fascinating to watch the entire thing unfold. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's more interesting. And, and I don't, I don't get um, as many people signing up for that one. So it's easy enough to just set up the card cam on those days. Um, but yeah, um, it's, there's a lot of factors, I think. Yeah. I, and I, I still, I still don't have the, the total solution other than just to keep looking for a really good office space, but it also limits my clients to what's local. Yeah. Well, it was just interesting to me, the idea that there might be more of a culture or an expectation surrounding in-person in tarot readings, as opposed to astrology, which while that used to be obviously more common doing astrological consultations in person um that even those there's less of an expectation of that i feel like um at this point and maybe yeah it has to do with the visual nature of things or even just some of the distraction stuff you were talking about i mean with tarot it's much more explicitly um taken for granted that it's like a, a form of divination or or that it's something like oracular and like you know going to an oracle that's supposed to be like a whole experience somehow in and of itself. And maybe there's some something surrounding that in tarot where that expectation is more obvious versus astrology sometimes is treated as something that's more abstract and like intellectual and like, you know, numbers based or, or what have you. Yeah. I need a, a, a new office that is over a chasm in the earth and get my three legged stool and, and bring people into like, um, you know, pass out from the fumes. Right. Yeah, like the, <laughs> that would be all. Th then they'd get their their money's worth. <laughs> like like the Oracle at Delphi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Um, yeah, because and there's those like research papers where they say that there were those like fumes that came out of the earth and that that may have contributed to like the oracular, uh, trance like state that the oracles got into or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would be good. I, well, if you do that, let me know because I will definitely come out for one of those <laughs> you readings. You pay for that. Yeah, okay. yeah, for I'll sure. Keep that in mind. That's, like, that's, that's going to be like the the fumes part is going to be an extra like twenty dollars or something like that. <laughs> right, exactly. There's yeah. a surcharge for that. Yeah, that's definitely an add on. Um, okay, uh, so let's see other things. We we're talking about publishing. I talked to a lot of astrologer, a few astrologers this um, week who were you know wanting to write books or like professional astrologers, and they were having that tension that I went through because of this weird transitional state that we're in with the publishing industry about whether to go with like a, a big major established publisher to publish an astrology book, whether to go with a smaller sized publisher, a medium sized publisher, or whether to self-publish. 
because so many astrologers are moving to self-publishing at this point and all of the different um, pros and cons uh, that, that go along with each of those. And, and that's something you've been thinking about a little bit because you want to write some books, right? Yeah. And I've got, I, I looked, it, looked it up recently. I have 450,000 words published on my blog, which is the equivalent of five to six not hefty the way your book is hefty, but still like respectable size books. Right. Um, so not like bludgeoning size books like mine. <laughs> not, but more like, yeah, not just, something that could come up in a murder mystery. As, right. As like a mur murder weapon. <laughs> yes, exactly. If but, it was like Clue or something like that, like the board game. Right. It was like it was in the it was in the attic with the the large Hellenistic astrology tome. And it was like the groundskeeper and he murdered him with the book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so um unfortunately I I have trouble like staying on a single topic. So all of those blog posts, everybody's like, oh, just throw some blog posts together in a book. I'm like, yeah, that 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 would not be a coherent thing to do. Um but yeah, no, it is that that kind of stuff is um a big consideration and um yeah it's like the freedom to just write the like craziest thing that i really want to talk about and um know that it might not appeal to a wide audience versus um you know somebody i know in publishing suggested write the the your best thing and it's like well my best thing is going to be pretty crazy <laughs> and not necessarily accessible um and like you mean like detailed or high level type stuff okay yeah that would need a lot of explanation just to even get into it wouldn't be the kind of thing that you could just pick up and flip through to to the middle of the book and read a chapter or read a page and say oh this i totally am on board with this you might have to like i don't know maybe you could maybe i'm i'm being too hard on myself um, uh, it, it just seems like there's a lot of kind of, um, stepping people into the processes that I do and work with and teach and use with clients and with students and all of that. Um, I think where I'm coming down on the whole idea is, um, I feel like one of the main things is if you have a big audience of your own self-publishing and this like this is like the perfect example of you you had a huge following have a few huge but even at the time you published your book you already had a huge following and so self-publishing made tons of sense for you mm -hmm. and um and i don't have a huge following and so going with a a bigger publisher might mean less money for me but it might be mean better distribution yeah, because then that in of itself would then create your, your audience for you and create a reputation nationally or worldwide because you would be, you know, the person that published that book that lots of people read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of where I'm coming down on the divide. Um, uh, although it's still hard and complicated to process, and you know, maybe there, are, and ultimately, maybe there'll be some things that I self-publish and then some things that I go through a publisher. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough because the trade-off is, um, you know, if you self-publish, if, if you go through a publisher, then you don't make anything. Basically you, you hardly make anything. 
Um, whereas, but but it gets better distribution. Whereas, if you self-publish, then you make you know all of the proceeds, but then there's a lot more startup costs because you've got to you've got to fund the entire production of the book, which includes like you know editing, diagrams, cover illustration, layout, which is a huge thing, indexing, which is a huge thing, and then getting into print, and then you've got to be the one that does the legwork to like promote it and get it out there. Um, so it, it's kind of a trade-off. So that self-publishing sometimes is the better long-term strategy because you also get full creative control over the book to you know meet whatever your ideal vision is for the book. So self-publishing is almost like the the better option in the long term, in some sense, financially as like a business person. But then in the short term, um, going with a major publisher is probably easier in terms of startup costs and in terms of having somebody that like knows how to publish a book and all the things you need to do and you can just focus on the creative process of like writing the book so it's it's tricky though because also there's not a you know the publish number of publishers is kind of shrinking in terms of that and um even bookstores are kind of you know disappearing in some ways so it's not like even bookstores are carrying as many astrology or sometimes tarot books because those shelves have been sort of shrinking for years so it's not even guaranteed, even if you go with a major publisher, that you're necessarily going to see the book like on bookshelves or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's complicated, and I know even um, of some of the primary publishers for kind of esoterica and some things like that. I know some of my friends that are authors um, still have to do their own indexing, right? You know, and yeah. still have to. Um, make sure somebody else is reading it to to proofread and and some things like that and other other friends that are published did end up with a publisher that provided a lot more services and no publisher offers any kind of marketing anymore mm. and so no matter what you're stuck with doing the marketing yeah that's <laughs> what i've heard as well so it's like even if you get a publishing deal with a larger or a major publisher at this point they don't even offer as much as they used to in terms of the reasons that you normally would want to go with a major publisher that you assume that they would offer. Yeah, yeah. And so it really, I, I think it really just does come down to distribution hmm. as far as, um, I don't know. And, and I keep, yeah, I've got a lot of friends of published in various forms and it's always just fascinating to talk to them about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of pros and cons. I mean, that could be a whole. I, I think I will do an episode of that at some point. I was talking to an astrologer at the conference that runs Jen's Art, that runs a small, medium-sized publishing company of herself, and is is trying to you know publish different books. And um, that was something we talked about doing a whole episode talking about at some point. Oh, that'd be fascinating. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Other things. Have you been surprised? I've been shocked. This is like a longer term thing that's been happening definitely over the past five years, but maybe even longer than that. Seeing on YouTube the um, like rise of tarotology or like the the sort of blend between astrology and tarot, this like unique blend that's kind of emerged over the past decade. Yeah, it um yeah, it has definitely taken off along with tarot's taken off and um astrology's taken off and all of these things yeah. um are are going great guns right now and I'm um, so it's yeah it's been crazy it's blown me away how much astrology's taken off in the popular culture over the past 3 or 4 years since about 2018 or so is has it been this it's been the same for tarot? 
Yeah, it really has. And um, uh, yeah, and the blend of those things is really appealing to people because they like both. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I guess I, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a specific thing to say. Yeah. Well, and it sort of caters to the perception that the two are, um, are interlinked or are interchangeable or one and the same, which I think is interesting because that was an assumption I had going into astrology like 20 years ago. And I started learning in 1999 or 2000, I assumed they were somehow interlinked. And I assumed there were other things that were interlinked with astrology, like astrology and like past lives that you could look at a birth chart and it would tell you about a past life, like, a, like for sure, or that that was an obvious con- connection to make. But in reality, like some of these are separate things or do not necessarily you know, like me, for example, in doing the astrology podcast, I decided for for the most part, for most of the past twenty years, I've just been a straight astrologer or or just doing astrology. And it's it's capable. It's possible to practice astrology and not know anything about tarot. Or I assume it's also possible to like practice tarot and not really know that much about astrology. Um, but now, but oftentimes, the public that that are not specialists in either of those things assume that they're interlinked or interchangeable. And I get the sense on like YouTube and, and some of those social media platforms that this almost like caters more to the public perception that they're interchangeable more so than they were up until relatively recently in some ways. Is that what do you think? Of, how does that strike you? Yeah, it's um, that maybe you, I don't, maybe that's not your perception because I know you have focused a lot and you've given talks for like the Denver Astrology Group uh, a few years ago on the relationship between astrology and tarot. Yeah, and the relationship between them developed through the Kabbalah, which is what's really interesting. And how I, and what happened for me when I first learned and I first um, uh, started studying tarot in 1991, and I had basically started working with a spiritual teacher. And and we were learning sacred geometry and we were learning. a little bit of Kabbalah and and just a variety of things like that, and and tarot just was on the agenda of things to learn. Um, I had never had a tarot reading. I hadn't. Um, I don't think I'd ever seen a tarot deck. I think if I had seen one, I would have immediately been really interested in it because I love images. Um, but you know, I hadn't. When I started studying it, it was through. Um, it was through this spiritual uh background and um and i immediate i always thought that tarot was related to neo-paganism because that was the background i was coming into it to discover uh, or to um to learn it and like like wicca and stuff like that is that what you mean yeah by yeah and um and the first time i did a uh, a psychic fair I assumed that everybody at the psychic fair, I just, I don't know. I thought that I had never been to a psychic fair either. Um, and here I was reading at one. And um, I just assumed everybody would be pagan because that to me was the thing. And my very first client was Christian and and kind of made a comment about that. And I'm like, and you're getting a tarot reading? Um, and so it was like, I always feel um, particularly early on, but even even sometimes more recently, doing psychic fairs in particularly in particular, the very first client I get of the day almost always is there to teach me something. 
And that that was the first thing I learned at my very first psychic fair is, no, these are not all pagan people. The, the paganism does not is not a one-to-one correspondence with tarot. Um, and so, yeah, it sounds like for you, you thought that maybe the correspondence was astrology and tarot. Um, I, I came into that a lot later. Um, the, I hadn't, when I joined the Denver tarot meetup, I had not learned astrology yet. And um, the guy that ran it, the guy that started it, um, Scott Womack, and uh, who ran it until he passed it off to me in, in 2011. Well, he, he might have had a couple other people helping him out. But um, at any, any rate, he was an astrologer and did love that part of it. And so, you know, there was, there was this weird question. Why do some of the minor arcana cards have these astrological correspondences, um, but they don't seem to like not everything seems to be represented, which you would need too many cards to do that. And so we try to lay out the cards on our chart, but we try to say like, well, the four of cups is moon and cancer. And so if you had the moon and cancer, you'd put down the four of cups, but you know, some other um, thing wouldn't, wouldn't work, you know, like, um, and well, I, I, I don't know. Um, uh Saturn and Cancer doesn't show up in the in the tarot deck, you know, and so um, so yeah, it's it just there was a curiosity and a question. I guess that's where I'm going with this. There was a curiosity and a question. It's like, how does this work? Why are these the way they are? Um, and then and then getting into and discovering that all the answers lay in Kabbalah, actually. Okay, and that's part of the interrelationship between that and the way that. Especially with the Rider Weight deck, because it was it it had some background in Kabbalah, that that um, that and some of the astrological symbolism was then infused or informed some of the the Rider Weight deck, which then that deck influenced most others over the past century. Yeah, um, the the um, I mean the the correspondence. See, uh, to kind of try to nutshell it. The 22, there's 22 major arcana. There's 22 Hebrew letters. Uh, there's a Kabbalistic text called the Sefer Yetzirah that was probably developed around the second century, uh, common era. And um, then it was refined um, somewhere. And I'm really bad with dates, so forgive me, please, for if I get them wrong. It was uh, refined around the 10th century. And then again, um, uh, more recently, and again, I'm so bad with dates, but uh, um, oh, that sounds correct. And what little I know about it, so yeah, um, rough, roughly. And so, uh, and and basically, a bunch of texts were compiled, mm. and that's when the Sefer Yetzirah is like a is a kind of finalized text was created. And I want to say the 1500s, but like I said, I'm wretched with dates. Um, and so the. The Sefer Yetzirah outlines the 22 Hebrew letters with planetary and zodiacal and elemental symbolism. Okay. And so then the question became, so how do we take the 22 tarot major arcana and apply them to these 22 Hebrew letters? Because that would be the key to getting the, um, the cards matched up with astrology. And um, there, in 
the in 1781 or two or something like that, um, there was Le Monde Primitif um, by Cour de Jablin, and his he wrote on the tarot in like the sixth or seventh volume or some such thing of this nine vo- something volume thing, and his friend appended an essay, and that was by the uh, Count. Comte de M, which they believe is the Comte de Malay. And in that essay, he, he made these equations that um, the final card of the major arcana, the world card, was associated with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then the, the preceding the, uh, card, the judgment card, went with bait. And then so backwards through the major arcana, um, following the 22 letters. Um, so there are, um, there are, there are some interpretations of the Cour de Jablens essay and Comte de Ma- and these things are finally being translated out of French. And so I think they're available now, um, which I haven't picked them up. I tried getting through some of the French myself. <laughs> um, but, um, who is it? Um, Donald Tyson does have a translation, an older translation up, but there's some newer translations that I understand are better. I just haven't picked them up yet. Um, and um, there, there was one interpretation I read that said that Cordage Blen and Comte de Malay had enough in common in their, their two approaches that it is, and at the same time, without necessarily referencing each other, that it's likely that they were getting their information from a common source. Right. Cause this is back in like the period where there's all these like secret societies running around and there's these speculations about these guys like be- belonging to the same secret si- society. And so that what we see in retrospect that has some historical documentation is just like the reflection of the output of some of these secret societies that we don't have documentation of. Yeah, exactly. And so then, um, uh, then the next big thing was Eliphas Levy, and that was an again apologize 1850s I believe that Elif- Eliphas Levy um, published his book, um, uh, Dogma and Ritual of High Magic, um, which which Arthur Edward Waite did a translation of, but there's a more recent translation um, by uh, John Michael Greer and somebody else whose name I can't remember right now. Um, and uh, he he did um, the he did the magician, which is Trump one is Aleph the first letter, and the high priestess Trump two is Bait the second letter, and so on. And then he put the fool in as a penultimate thing in between the judgment card and the world card. So the fool ended up being Sheen, and then the world was Tav. And then that held held on for quite a number of years. And the Golden Dawn um, uh, Mathers, his his book, uh, his first book on the tarot, actually used those correspondences. And then it was during the the time, which was in that first book was published in, in I believe eighteen eighty eight, which is the same year the Golden Dawn Dawn started. And then um, and then later during the um, uh, work of the Golden Dawn, they published um, 
lectures and and uh, things that were just for members. And somewhere in there is when they they changed it for for another the third time, basically, and said, "Okay, let's put the fool back at the beginning." And so now zero, the fool equals Aleph, the first letter. And then the magician, the Trump one equals bait, the second letter, high priestesses, Gimel, and so on and so forth in order. And that's the one that's really stuck. Um, and Because um, that was the one then that the Rider Waite deck was based on? The Rider Waite deck was following that, and, um, and then the Toth deck. Um, was following it, and the and those which was Alistair Crowley's deck, right? Yeah, and those correspondences were not published immediately, but um, Crowley ended up publishing them in his magazine, The Equinox. And like, I'm again, man, I wish I was better at dates, but I think it was 1912 that he published those finally. Mm -hmm. Um, and and even wait in his book from. The deck was published in 1909, but I think his book might have been a year or two later, um, Pictorial Key to the Tarot. Um, he said, all the correspondences are wrong, save one. <laughs> Being the world as Tav in, in both the Eliphas Levy system and in the, in the Golden Dawn system. So he endorsed the latest iteration, which is the one the Golden Dawn came up with as well yeah okay. yeah and so and then but you can read um there's still a number of um well-known respected writers um not not just like the continental system is usually following um the or the french system sometimes they call it is usually following levy and then there's the golden dawn system which is the english system but you'll still find other writers that that um, respected writers, not just like people that are just making things up because it sounds good to them, um, that that are using some different, that are using different systems. Um, and um, uh, I think it's Fred Gettings is one that has some really good explanations for how he he's he does a different system, but it's but it's really well explained. Um, I like I like following a tradition and I love the fact that it is um that it's not logical that it is based on a sequence. I mean and which, so, which is a type of logic, isn't it? Except for the fact that that people will will um it is a type of logic. But what happens is a lot of people say, well, it doesn't make sense. This correspondence to this card is not a logical, obvious correspondence. And so then they want to start tweaking the system. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, and this is a different type of logic. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's what I really like is the fact that it might not be apparent why a certain card matches a certain letter. Um, but by just saying, okay, I want to work with this. I want to understand this. I want to, um, uh, you know, receive insight and, um, teachings on why this is, and then you can really uncover some amazing things that way. And if you try to logic it yourself, I don't, I think you miss out on the, the esoteric 
um, inner teachings of the that you can get from the system. I don't know if I explained that very well. Yeah, it it sounds a little bit like how in astrology you have different um, systems of interpretation, sometimes with technical things and where you begin the sequence, and and that they have their own internal logic. Like I'm thinking of like the domicile rulership scheme, which is very much dependent on um, you know assigning the sun and moon to the two signs that follow the. Uh, summer solstice, which is the hottest and brightest part of the year in the northern hemisphere, where the system was created, and then assigning the rest of the planets in zodiacal order based on the relative speed and distance flanking out from there. Um, so you have a sort of like internal logic that's consistent in, into itself, but is very much dependent on where you can establish the starting point of that sequence. And once you establish it, the rest of the sequence flows from there. Yeah, exactly. Precisely like that. And and that and I love that too. That that's something that when I first learned that is like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> right. With like the theme of Monday and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, with that it's interesting because then you do get later um, you know, attempts to sort of change that system or reconfigure things once they start finding the outer planets. And it's interesting how some of the astrologers in the 1800s and 1900s, you know, must have been aware of that original sequence, but then they tried to extend it by adding, you know, like Uranus to Aquarius, the next open sign after Capricorn, or adding um, Neptune to Pisces or what have you, which we can see as like logical extensions of that early original system and sequence, but now astrologers these days have this this question about which of those two sequences to adopt: the the older like traditional astrology rulerships or the newer modern astrology rulerships or what have you. Yeah, and that's and that's a really good example of both work you can use whichever one resonates for you, um, and you can still get obviously very good readings using either system. And um, and I personally like. Um, I like the the um, more structured, um, symmetrical um, uh, approach, um, and um, just from the ESAR conference. I mean, Rick Levine has some really good stuff on that, and and um, yeah, I I like his I liked his interpretation, and he's like, and then jupiter got pushed aside <laughs> right. and some things like that but yeah um yeah but it's a good example i think of what you're talking about as an analogy in astrology just because that's an instance where depending on what sequence you use like let's say the the traditional rulership scheme and those assignments to the signs where it's like you know saturn to aquarius and jupiter to pisces and mars to scorpio you're going to interpret the symbolism and you're going to understand the meaning of those signs in a way that's different than if you use the modern rulership scheme and you use that sequence, that's going to alter or give you somewhat different uh, interpretation or understanding of the symbolism of those signs with Uranus you know, ruling Aquarius or Neptune ruling Pisces or Pluto ruling Scorpio. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a similar thing with tarot in terms of how you set up some of those correspondences and and different schools of correspondence with the Hebrew letters and then subsequently like different astrological assignments because that's going to change some of your interpretations of the correspondences in the tarot deck itself. Right, right. And um and again, you can anything works, anything works. And if you pick a system and stick to it or make up your own system and stick to it, you will get 
you know, if you are internally coherent with what you're doing and consistent with that, you will get good results. Um, and okay. I think, I mean, does anything work? Like that's one of the open questions in, in these forms of divination is does anything go ultimately? Um, and are people just using it as a vehicle for like intuition or something else, or does there need to be some kind of systemization or some sort of internal logic that's coherent in order for divination systems to, to make sense? Well, that's the question. That's, isn't the, million, it? that's the million dollar question. Just solve that question for <laughs> me right, right for now. Right I just now. put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, one thing that I notice is that I try not to spend too much time on Facebook to my own detriment. However, um, I uh, once in a while I'll pop on there and um, and some tarot group that I'm part of, somebody, you know, people are constantly posting their readings and other people are commenting, right? Okay. And so somebody posts a reading and, and you know, there's 250 responses to it. <laughs> and, you know, and I read 10 or 20 of that, sometimes 50 or 100 because I can really get sucked into this stuff. Um, and, um, and everybody's got something different to say. And there might be a theme that starts to build up, but all these people have different things to say. And the truth of the matter is, if that person had come to person A for a reading, they would have gotten a certain set of cards that is that language that person A speaks when they're doing a reading. If that same querent went to person B for a reading, person B would have, you know, a, a different set of cards might have come out. And that would have been the language that person B would use to arrive at the same thing. They would say the same thing, but they would have, it would have been different cards and uh, produced a, a similar interpretation. So when, when person A through, you know, double Z are all looking at the same set of cards, none of that, that none of them pulled they're all going to have different interpretations. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there something to that about, there's an idea sometimes in astrology, especially in horary, that um, the client approaches the astrologer, that exchange in it itself, and the, the chart that is cast for that moment, the astrologer is able to speak using their own approach or their own system. And um in, in some instances, that the the thing that the client needed to hear in that moment and was supposed to hear is the thing that will arise in that moment between the astrologer and the client, and that sometimes, for example, like um, you know, different astrologers reuse different house systems. For example, um, for example, in, in horary, like some astrologers might use quadrant houses, and other astrologers might use whole sign houses or equal houses or what have you, and that the system that the astrologer used in that moment was the one that was right for them because that's what they're they're used to and they can they can apply consistently and it was the one that the client was supposed to have at that moment and then if you kind of like take the chart outside of that context and like post it on a public forum where there's a hundred different astrologers that would use different systems and interpret it in different ways that that kind of removes it from the the moment the the relevance or not the relevance but the 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 um context of what was important which was um the organic way that the sort of chart arose in that moment and, and what was supposed to be said between 
the two parties that exchanged the question and and the answer in some way. I'm having trouble yeah. articulating no, that, but something like that. Perfectly articulated it. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly how it works, and exactly um, why. Yeah, you can use these different systems, and as long as you're um, coherent within yourself, and and um, you know the word integrity. Um, you know, is something that holds its shape. You know, you've got integrity with the way that you, um, the way that you work, and and you'll get the answers that the that the person needs, regardless of of the system that you use. I think the so that's the argument. I like to argue both sides. That's the argument for why it works, no matter who's doing it. I think the other argument for for uh, following a particular tradition. Or being um, unified or coherent within one tradition and not being too much buffet style with it is that um, as you layer and you and you even mentioned you're like you were finding so many um, uh, associations and correspondences you're like I'm going to go back to just the images with tarot um, and then work on those other layers later and that's what happens is that you can. If you start that process exactly like you're doing with working with the images and then come back and add those other things on, that's where the tradition um, and the coherence of the tradition uh, becomes really powerful because you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and add on more and more layers and they, um, they not only cohere and align but they also have the benefit of generations or sometimes hundreds of years of, well, and with astrology, possibly thousands of years, not with tarot, <laughs> um, but, you know, um, years and years of tradition and many people thinking about it the same way. Many people working within the system, and they might come to different conclusions about how it works. But the but that um, uh, in magic we call that the egregore, or I hear sometimes people say egregore. Um, it's it's that um, energy that builds up around many people working um, consistently with a specific symbol system. Mm, so there's almost like a. Uh sedimentation or something that that builds up over time like like different layers of sediment so and also you're saying like learning the base learning some initial thing um and then later like like learning the images of the tarot first and then later if you learn other over other systems of symbolism that are then that can be applied to that um that you're kind of like digging it up in stages and it sort of like deepens your understanding Versus, I know in in astrology, and one of the reasons I decided to approach tarot like that is because I know in astrology that sometimes, if a student doesn't start out with the basics and keep it somewhat simple at first, learning the basic framework, if you try to go and learn everything at once, there's like diminishing returns. You can just get overwhelmed if you go if you try to learn like the signs and the planets and the all the different house systems, and if you try to add like asteroids and fixed stars and you know Arabic parts and all that stuff at once. Um, it just becomes a jumbled sort of mess. And even though your initial impulse might be, you know, I'm going to learn everything, and that's going to be the best way to do it, that actually sort of counterintuitively works against you in some ways. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, letting, yeah, letting it build up slowly. Um, 
and that's how I did it. I mean, I didn't start learning. I didn't I didn't learn astrology until you know, I don't know, t- 2009 um is when I did my first chart delineation in my weird little way that I do <laughs> was doing it at the time. So you've um, been studying tarot at that point since 1981, sort of like 15 almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And so um you know, and then and then um and and a few years before that, because um, I came ac- across Kabbalah prior to coming across astrology, basically, and so, um, so yeah, and I so I had already started working with uh, Kabbalistic correspondences and starting to experiment with that and layering layering that onto tarot, and then coming across astrology and adding that other layer. And these were you know years apart for me, um, and so if you're tr- yeah, if you're trying to learn it all at once, I don't know. And some people might be able to. I'm not saying they can't. <laughs> some yeah. people just have the capacity for that. <laughs> well, and, the, and there's certainly something to be said in astrology, at least for like getting an overview of the field and and getting some awareness of all the different traditions that exist, and then picking one to sort of specialize in. And that was something I I kind of lucked out that I went to Kepler College, you know, about four years into my study because they forced me to. Um, step outside of my comfort zone and step outside of the like default form of modern psychological Western astrology that I had learned that I kind of fell into and assumed was the best or the only form of astrology. And they forced me to start studying like, you know, Hellenistic astrology and Indian astrology and all these other traditions, and which I initially had an aversion to. But then because they kind of forced me to study it, I ended up realizing that there was something of value there. Which I then decided to pursue, and eventually became like my my thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like there is something to like getting an overview of the field and having enough exposure to know what system to find a system that speaks to you. Um, yeah. So that's a, I guess that's a tension there, both in learning astrology and learning tarot. Yeah, and and I don't know if this is a good example or not, but um, I started teaching tarot in 1994, and my teacher actually trained me. Um, to develop my first class. So I had his guidance uh, at that time. Um, and then, so I had been teaching tarot since 1994. And then it was much later, about 2006-ish, that I started learning Kabbalah and 2009 that I started learning astrology. And and then that became my thing is esoteric tarot, which is which is the those symbol systems laid over the the tarot images. And, um, and so now it's like, well, my thing is esoteric tarot, which is very advanced, but I've been teaching beginning tarot for so long. And the way I teach beginning tarot highly informs the way I read esoteric tarot. And so this, even people are like, so what's your specialty? And it's like, well, it's not that I only want to teach advanced tarot. It's that you can't learn my advanced tarot unless you learn my beginning tarot. Um, it just it it just will fall apart. So so yeah, it's um, it does, and and I think the same is true for you. It's like the the first stuff that you learned still, I believe, um, informs a lot of what you do, even after you started layering the. Um, Hellenistic techniques over top of it, right. would you say? Yeah, for sure. I think my approach and what I demonstrate on the astrology podcast is a blend of of ancient and modern astrology. And um, 
yeah, I, I, I still take a lot of the insights, like the use of the outer planets, for example, even though even if the foundation of my approach at this point is is as a technical structure is largely um, Hellenistic in terms of using traditional rulers and whole sign houses and bringing some of those original concepts back into contemporary practice, I also like add on some of the modern um, astrology and the good things from modern astrology that I picked up early in my studies that I still think are very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think everybody does that. Is like basically everybody's approach eventually ends up being a synthesis of what their primary teachers' approaches were, which sometimes can be like you know two different people, or it can be two or three or four or what have you. But it's like whatever your primary influences are, you take those in as a student, and you kind of like breathe those in. And then you make them your own, and then eventually you synthesize them, and then you sort of exhale and teach that um, to whatever the next generation is through your own students. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was yeah. my analogy that I used last weekend when I accepted the award for like best podcast at the ESAR conference. This idea, because I kept thinking of the how astrology used to be associated with the Mercury, and how we're always like learning and then speaking and. Um, yeah, and, and just this process that the flow of knowledge is like the flow of of breathing, where you breathe in and you hold it and then you you breathe out eventually. And that process of um that flow of information is learning and taking things in, but also something that Demetra told me very early on when I first met her at Kepler and I was about to start um teaching classes at like my high school on astrology. I taught a class on astrology at high school when I was finishing up and I was getting into Kepler. And she said that was a really good idea because sometimes you learn, you can finalize your knowledge or not finalize, but you can um, come to a much better understanding of what you know by trying to teach it to somebody else. And, and that in some instances, it's only through attempting to teach to somebody else that you, you can fully um, make your thoughts on what you think you know more concrete. Yeah, absolutely. I totally... Um... I love teaching because I learned so much from it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like in doing a consultation, it's like, um, even though you know something and that's valuable and that's why somebody's coming to you as an astrologer, as a, as a reader, um, when you sit down and read a chart from a stranger, um, you're learning some stuff because each person is going to represent a unique manifestation of those those placements in their birth chart and whatever those archetypes are. And that's going to be interesting and insightful because while it'll probably be consistent with what you already know of either the ar archetype abstractly from that placement or from past sort of empirical evidence that you have of seeing how those placements have worked out for other people, the unique manifestation in this instance in that person's life is going to be something new in some ways. And you'll learn a new unique way that that symbolism can manifest in each instance. Yeah. Yeah. Really good example. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Um, okay. Last thing you mentioned the Kabbalah, and I just want to mention in passing because you were one of the people that mentioned to me because of your background in Kabbalah when I was doing some work years ago when I was working on my book about the Saturn as possibly fem feminine yeah, yeah. in some astrological traditions, like in possibly in Dorotheus, but I wasn't sure if it was a typo or if it was a genuine tradition. And then later in Theophilus of Edessa, he drew on Dorotheus and he also seemed to treat Saturn as feminine. Although I was never, I wasn't sure if that was due to some genuine variant tradition in the Hellenistic tradition that treated Saturn as feminine instead of masculine, um, or if it was just due to a, like a typo or an error in the transmission. But you were one of the people that pointed out that in the Kabbalah and in some of the Kabbalic 
um, assignments of the planets to the tree of life that Saturn was assigned, was treated as feminine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the tree of life um, glyph in Kabbalah, uh, which is the 10 circles, um, that follows the, um, the Ptolemaic cosmos with the earth at the center and then uh, the sphere of the moon and then Mercury and Venus and the sun, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and beyond that, the fixed stars and beyond that, the prima mobile. And so um, when you're looking at that cater at the top, that's the prima mobile. That is the first whirlings. It's the... Um, energy that starts all of the other uh the in these these are visualized as crystalline spheres that are nested okay. and um and that is the energy that starts them turning so the so, sphere at the very top of the at the of the diagram yeah okay and so then you go down to hokma which is to the right and down and that's number two and that one is the fixed stars and that that's going to be your zodiac, the fixed stars, the um, background against which the planets move. Um, and that one and cater is considered beyond gender. It's it's um, it is a combination of um, it's either both genders or no gender, um, uh, all genders, um, however you want to say that. Hokma is considered uh, masculine and is Ab, the father, and um, or Abba. And then uh, Bina, the third one, which goes over um, on the left-hand side there, uh, Bina is the mother, Ama or Aima. And Ama is the, um, the dark, sterile mother, and Aima is the bright, fertile mother. And then... Um, from there, if you that particular diagram you've got up has dot uh, in the yeah in the center there, um, and that is a quasi sephira, and I'm not going to address it right now. But then going down to the fourth one, we have Hesed, and that's Jupiter. And then from there, so oh, in Ama uh, Bina is um, is Saturn. And that's the mother energy. And then we go to Hesed, which is Jupiter, and then uh, back to Mars. Hold on a second. So, yeah, yeah. So Saturn is the third sphere, is assigned to the third sphere, and it's the sphere that's in the top left corner uh, of the diagram. And that's because and Saturn's like the furthest planet out in the traditional system. It's the furthest visible planet. So it's like they're partially starting by assigning the planets in descending Order. Chaldean order, yeah. Yeah, starting with the furthest. And so Saturn is in the top left. And then we're jumping to um, there. the bottom right. And people can't see my cursor, so I'm trying to oh, okay. figure the, out how the to middle, describe it. The, on the, the middle one on the right-hand side. Because there's, there's three columns, essentially. So there's a far left column, there's a middle column, and there's a far right column. Yeah. And Saturn's on the top of the far left column. And then we go... Crisscross basically across, and we jump to the second sphere down in the in the right column, and that's Jupiter. Yes. Okay. So and yeah, and then it goes straight across to the left hand side again, and that's Mars. Okay. And so one of the things that you'll notice right away is that Bina at the top of that column is 
feminine, and below it is Mars, which is masculine. Also, you will notice that both Saturn and Mars are on the same side, right. which is the feminine side of the tree. So the, the two malefics are assigned to the left side of the tree, and the left side is considered feminine, and then the two benefics end up getting assigned to the right side of the tree, which is, generally speaking, said to be masculine? Uh, right. Okay. And um, and the the Jewish tradition and the Hermetic tradition vary um, in in a number of um, uh, just a number of um, ways of of looking at it. And the um, in the Hermetic tradition, we actually back ourselves up to the tree, and so the left hand side gets. Um, uh, uh, Hokma and Hesed and Netzach, and the right hand side uh, gets uh, Bina is at the eye, and then Hesed is at the shoulder, or I mean, Gavor is at the shoulder, and then Hod is at the hip. Um, and so, so even saying left and right changes according to the tradition that you're following. Not to be too complicated, but yeah, I do want to point that out in case somebody's like, what? That's not what I learned. Um, so going back to because this assignment, because I tried to, I had to try to trace this assignment back, and I have a little footnote about it in my book, and it seemed like this assignment that we're describing here is the one that goes back to the medieval period at some point. I think, if I'm understanding correctly, in terms of assigning certain planets in descending Chaldean order to the Tree of Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, Mars is this like second sphere on the left side. Then we go um, like crosswise again, right? Yeah, and then it goes down to number six to ferret, um, which is really the very center of the tree. And yep, and then um, and then down uh, to the as you're looking at it, the right hand side, the bottom one, which is Netzach, that's Venus to ferret. Sorry, to ferret is the sun, and then in the sun, and they say that the sun is a. Um, the sun is in the middle of the heavens, like the heart is in the middle of the body, and the king is in the middle of the kingdom. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool because I can see that line in the middle is connecting like all the other lines. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Um, and so that's the sun. And then um, and so you can see that even pre-Galileo and and who, you know, whoever is the one that was like, oh wait. I'm so bad at history. I'm embarrassing myself. But at anyway, whoever it was that was like, yeah, 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 the sun's at the center. That was already a philosophical idea that was around. It was just not about the solar system. It was philosophical. Yeah, the idea of the sun and, and being the symbol of like centrality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like the king and the thing that everything else goes around. And then ironically, that ended up being even more true than the ancients even realized. Yeah, yeah. And um again my lack of of history is is going to hold me back but that Wikipedia Wikipedia article that you had up there was um another diagram that was definitely an older one that that one there. Okay. Um is certainly an older one. Um and uh and you can see that there and this is part of the Part of the Kabbalistic tradition is that because there are even older ones yet that show all of the uh, Sephiro kind of more in a in a direct line, and that's actually one of the uh, principles of Kabbalah is that the first time the Sephiro were arranged, 
They were arranged in a direct line, and when the energy of the divine, they were considered to be like glass spheres or glass containers of some kind. When the energy of the divine went through them, um, they shattered uh, because the um, to take the entire entirety of the divine energy and to direct it into a um, single uh, container shattered that and then again the entirety of the energy went to the next container and that one shattered and so then they were spread out in arrays and that allowed the energy to step down so that it could go from the level of the divine down to the level of creation and um without breaking anything and um i mean i i really because i teach I teach all of this stuff and I combine um, this, these Kabbalistic ideas with my astrology and with the tarot and all of this. And, um, and this idea of working in arrays is the idea of nothing can hold on its own. It always has to be in relationship to something else. And so that has to do with, you know, you can't, you can't effectively interpret a planet even in a in a certain position in a sign and house by itself it really will not give you a true essence of that planet um for an individual unless you you see it as it it relates to the other planets in the chart same thing with tarot i never read a single card rarely rarely i will sometimes um i but i rarely read a single card and i always do at the very least two cards because it's always about how things interact Sort of like the um, the way that you can't remove the intertwining between like past, present, and future. That they're all they're they're interconnected in a way that that you can't it's you can't really remove one from the other. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, uh, Interdependent. Yeah, we're, we're going to go on with a whole other like that. two hour digression <laughs> yeah. if, we, if we go down that route. Um, so, but bringing it back, yeah, the, the, I, I was running into an issue and I was, and I never finished this research just of that. I wasn't sure if some of the planetary assignments that I was seeing were actually much later, even like Renaissance or like how far back I could trace them. And I, I'm actually a little ambiguous right now if I was able, able to get them back to the middle ages or how far I got them, but that's still some open questions, a lot of, a lot of stuff. But so just to finish up the, um, tree that we were looking at, so Venus ends up being the bottom right and then where's mercury it's on the far the left yeah bo bottom yep that's mercury and then the moon is the one um in the center uh uh one up from the bottom okay that's the moon and then the earth is down at the bottom the earth is the very bottom of the tree okay got it yeah and the and the main thing to to focus on is the um the idea that the hokma is a father that entire column is the, or pillar um the left the, side the or right side the as right you're side. Okay. as you're looking at it yeah that pillar is a is a um a pillar of mercy it's it's the pillar of force and it's considered masculine and on the other side on the left hand side as you're looking at it uh the one that's headed up with venus a pillar of form or the pillar of severity and that is the one that is feminine and it's got the it's got Saturn on it, but it's got Mars too, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, that grouping of of the benefics on the right side and the pillar of mercy and the two malefics on the left side with the pillar of I think you said severity. 
right. uh, is really fascinating to me. And also it's fascinating for another reason because it puts Mercury with the two malefics on the left side, which I thought was interesting and may explain something that was kind of a mystery to me and to a lot of people in the um, seven hermetic lots from Paulus Alexandrinus in the fourth uh, century, where he has an Arabic part or a lot for each of the planets. Um, you know, there's the two benefic lots for Venus and Jupiter, and there's the two malefic lots for Mars and Saturn, and they have appropriately positive significations largely for the benefics and negative significations for the malefics. But then when you get to Mercury, Mercury is called the lot of necessity, and it's like this strangely malefic lot for some reason that is kind of bizarre from a Hellenistic standpoint because Mercury in the Hellenistic astrological tradition is usually treated as kind of like neutral and in the system it's capable of going either way and it's said to be benefic when it's within the with the benefics or malefic when it's with the malefics or it's said to be you know a diurnal planet a daytime planet when it's within diurnal planets or it's said to be nocturnal when it's nocturnal he's very he can go either way but for some reason in the hermetic lots Mercury is treated as oddly malefic. And this is, again, one of the only other areas where I've seen a parallel that could maybe explain some of the background behind that, where maybe it was coming from something like this. And that's the reason why, in that tradition from the fourth century attributed to Hermes, interestingly, um, maybe it was getting influenced by like something like this or something. That's as far as I've gotten with that. Yeah, that would be really interesting to follow through with. And, um, and again, my lack of history is astonishing and embarrassing, but um, I, I do know that the, the glyph of the Tree of Life did develop later than the text, the Kabbalistic text, and I don't have the date on that. And so I'd be really curious to find what you, what you uncover exploring that. Yeah, and I'm sure maybe some people that are watching this or listening to this can comment, put it in the comments, like yeah. some researcher, if they know some of the historical stuff that we don't, that might be interesting observations that kind of go along with or maybe help us with with what we're starting to observe or what we're thinking on this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you for that. And that's another one of those areas where you've you've sort of like influenced me in your astrologer, Forrest Gumpy type style <laughs> and like something that's in the Hellenistic astrology book. Um, yeah, where you're one of the people that that mentioned that to me when I was doing that research. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love this stuff and it's super fascinating. Yeah. So this has been a really brilliant astrology chat. We were shooting to go for five and it's now five forty. I didn't realize we way overshot our time, and I know you have a train to catch tonight. Yes. Is that possible, or or have we blown your travel time? No, I think it's possible still. All right. Well, in that case, we we should wrap up. But okay. um, where can people find out more information about you? What do you have coming up in the future? And uh, what's your website? Um, they can find me at joyvernon.com. And I have a blog, Completely Joyous, which, of course, you can find at my website or at completelyjoyous.com. I do have a YouTube channel. Joy Vernon, Astrology, Tarot, Reiki, um, and um, and I. What I'm doing recently is I have my weird little thing where I combine astrology and Kabbalah and tarot and mythology and um, meditative practices and ritual practices and and um, all energetic practices. And I'm working with creativity right now and um, understanding your uh, each person's individual creative process through their chart 
and then doing um, uh, work around that using all of these other modalities uh, to um, open that up. And um, it's a year-long program. Um, so, and I have a, a new um, uh, a new cohort starting uh, in September mm. and ish <laughs> trying to line it up right now. So yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Cool. And your website you said is joyvernon.com. Yeah. Brilliant. That's better than mine. I, I had to do Chris Brennan astrology because of the, the MMA, MMA <laughs> right, guy. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah that has my <laughs> has my domain name. So I, I always am jealous of people that just have their street like first and last name.com. Um, cool. Well, yeah, people should definitely check out your website. I'll put a link to it in the description, either below this video on YouTube or on the Astrology Podcast website, where people can go to click that for this episode just to find out more information about you. Um, and thank you so much for joining me. This is a lot of fun. This is one of the most wide-ranging like astrology tarot chats that I've ever had, but I'm glad that we took this opportunity while you were in town to do this. So, so it was good to hang out with you again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, and Mimi Stargazer. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, 
and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.